Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, December 29th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In New York, this holiday season has very nearly perfectly overlapped with a different type of season. From the shooting of two NYPD officers the weekend before last, to the funeral of one of the officers two days ago, to next weekend's funeral of the other, it has been a raw and despondent period. And I have enormous sympathy for the cops. My uncle was one, my cousin is one, other cousins were and are cops. But I do think the blame the mayor, Mayor Bill de Blasio, has taken has been ill-founded, and the umbrage that the cops have expressed led by their union head who says there's blood on the mayor's hands, that umbrage has been distressingly unhelpful. That the mayor said he talked with his biracial son about proper behavior around police, that he used the word allegedly in describing protesters who threw a trash can at cops, that's the case, that he's anti-cop. That means he deserves to be spurned at a funeral where thousands of uniformed officers turn their backs on him as he consoled a grieving family who seemed to appreciate his kindness. But what I really want to do is to challenge my own view a little bit on this. So I could chalk up the police behavior as latching onto a tangible enemy to give your grief an outlet. That happens a lot. That's understandable. But even that explanation is a little condescending. So this weekend I was talking to reporter Michael Daly, who's been covering the police since the days when black and whites really were black and white. And I'll have him on in a minute. But what we discussed was the role that perspective plays. So think about this. Most of us are sympathetic to the fact that anti-police brutality protesters are aggrieved. They feel under fire. They felt for a long time ignored or misunderstood and that the media wasn't on their side. All of that can also be said of the cops as of late. And maybe you could argue, well, the difference between young black men who are protesting and the mostly 51%, but still mostly white NYPD, the difference is that one is a good case and the other doesn't. Well, that's not a way to really see the other side. Think of this. When we say that Bill de Blasio has said nothing technically wrong and that he often praises the police, why don't they hear it that way? Is that a problem of the communicator or the communicated to? I was thinking of the governor of Missouri, Jay Nixon, who was called tone deaf in his reaction to Ferguson. But like Bill de Blasio, he really didn't say anything wrong. He just didn't say enough that was right. So maybe during the days of protest after the non-indictment of the cop that put Eric Garner in a chokehold on Staten Island through the assassination of officers Ramos and Lou, maybe the same can be said of de Blasio. That if a constituency isn't hearing you, could be entirely their problem, but a little empathy might be caused to reconsider your message. The president of the United States is also the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. The mayor has a similar role with the cops. A word or two, a deed or two, to highlight the positive role that police play, to earnestly criticize the times protesters stepped over the line might have gone a long way. So on the show today, we will have that conversation with Michael Daly. And in the spiel, 
The topic will be how the gist beat most of the media to a story and what was so intimidating about that story. And we will talk to Al Michaels, sportscasting legend. Actually, that makes it seem like he's a has-been. No, he's a still-is. For my money, he's the best football announcer working today. He's also the voice of the 1980 U.S. hockey miracle on ice. But first, the dialogue between the police and the policed. It's been over a week since NYPD officers Rafael Ramos and Wenjin Liu were gunned down while sitting in their patrol car by a deranged assailant who soon thereafter committed suicide. This weekend, the funeral of Officer Ramos drew over 20,000 mourners, including officers from throughout the United States. Today was the NYPD Academy graduation, and New York Mayor Bill de Blasio spoke after some applause, some boos, and some catcalls. Joining me now is Michael Daly, who's been covering the NYPD for a quarter century. A long time with the Daily News. He's now a special correspondent for the Daily Beast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. So you were at the uh, Ramos funeral this weekend. You were at the graduation ceremony today. Two very different events. One was marked with anguish, the other hope. Um, Did you detect a change in attitudes among officers, or was it just that the ceremonies were different? Uh, I didn't detect any change, but the circumstances were so different that, um, it was, you know, it's obviously going to be a lot more intense if you're looking at a coffin. Um, yeah. But, you know, in some ways it's, you know, for the parents of those new cops, and that's where the booze came from, not from any police officers, today might have been more intense in terms of them looking at him because um, all during this kind of crazy time, Garner and the protests and the murder of these two officers, to have a kid go through the academy, this had to be the most difficult. So Mayor de Blasio did stop the uh, stop and frisk program. Backs were turned on him at the Ramos funeral. I know he's been criticized for things he said and hasn't said about the cops, but how much of their anger or disappointment is over the policy itself. Like, it doesn't matter what... I, don't think that, I think they're actually probably pretty happy they're not getting... Before, you got to understand, they were... I mean, Comstat... The weird thing is Comstat started on the principle that black lives matter. Right. This, is the, is, this the is the computer tracking system. The city system. was yeah. transformed. And the numbers have gone down. I mean, not, have, e- not every have. crime, but, you know, 1991, sure, height of the crack epidemic, 2,250 murders. This year, it's going to come to three, a little over 300 by the time right. the town. Ta- so that's amazing. And yet at this, well, I think there's a few things. One, I don't know if the regular person realizes that on an intellectual level, even though they must certainly feel it. But I wonder, how much does rhetoric matter? I mean, there's so much real progress made. How come it's being portrayed like there's so much tension between the police and those who are policed? Because the progress is real, and you can't argue with it. Well, there's tension. I mean, in some levels, there's less tension because there's less kids getting stopped and having their balls broken. And in other ways, there's greater tension. And part of it was there was this kind of string of events that began with the death of Michael Brown and Ferguson and continued on to the Eric Garner case. And, you know, a lot of the protesters are actually middle or upper class kids who live in Williamsburg and Bushwick, thanks to the police. 
and really have no sense of the police and really have no sense of the city's history and, re- and don't really know the city they live in. And so in 1971, 1972, a couple pairs of officers were gunned down, assassinated, and this has been reported. I think people forget that those weren't the only incidents. I mean, there were many incidents of targeting cops. Lie was thrown in the face of cops. Officers were critically wounded. There was an incident where... Uh, This happened, uh, some assailants shot at cops, and then they later sent the license plate of the car they were driving to show that it was them to a a newspaper and a radio station. And they wrote, I have what they wrote, we send them in order to exhibit the potential power of oppressed people to acquire revolutionary justice. The armed goons of this racist government will again meet the guns of the oppressed third world people as long as they continue to occupy our community and murder our brothers and sisters. This was... This was a real claim by people who really did open up on cops. It's totally different from today. It's totally different from one deranged person operating without ties to anyone and possibly reality. And yet I hear the comparison again and again. How much of it is a good comparison and how much isn't? Obviously, you have two murdered officers in both instances. Oddly enough, Officer Ramos worked at the Rocco Lorry School named after one of those two officers that were murdered in the Lower East Side. Yeah. But in some ways, for for the cops, it's a little scarier because, I mean, the early assassinations were carried out by the BLA, which is a finite number of people that the police identified relatively quickly. The Black Liberation Army. they knew that once they locked up the last member of the Black Liberation Army, it was essentially over. With this, they don't know if there's some other nut out there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's certainly a lot of guns. And there's certainly a lot of nuts. Now, the question is, is there some other nut out there? And, you know, you look at these, you go to that graduation and you, you hear the same band that played at the funeral. And um, and you look at these beautiful kids and you think that two years ago Ramos was, you know, doing the same thing and standing there with his gold braid on his shoulder and posing for pictures with his kids and... And you just really, really hope that nothing happens to these new cops. Do you think with the right tone and the right message, uh, de Blasio could bring about the exact same policies that he wants to bring about and still have the cops on board with him? Well, I mean, he has them on board in the sense that he needs. I mean, first of all, he would not be mayor if it weren't for them because people are not going to vote for progressive if they're worried about getting to the corner without getting robbed. That is true. And so he, he was... Police made it possible for him to be the mayor. They made it possible for the city to have this much money pouring in from tourism and other things. They made all this possible for him. And, but he didn't convey to them any sense of that. He didn't convey to them any gratitude. He warned his son about how to deal with police and they get stopped. I tell my kids that, but, you know, if you have a biracial son, obviously it's more serious. Yeah. And, but he didn't also say, oh, by the way, Dante... The cops made us rich because we had houses that we worth, would have been worth nothing not so long ago are now worth more than a million dollars each. And you can get to and from school without worrying about losing your lunch money, all because of the police. He didn't convey any of that. And, I mean, they'll work with him. They'll not crime down. They'll risk getting killed. Let's hope they don't get killed. If they don't like him, which I suspect they never will, so what? I mean, they don't need to like him. I mean, he may feel better if he goes to a 
police ceremony and doesn't feel that everybody hates them. I mean, which no one likes that feeling, but they're never going to really like him, I don't think. But so what? Will you be attending Officer Lou's funeral? Will you be covering that this weekend? Yes. And what, are we, what will you be looking for? You know, in some ways you don't know what's worse is that uh, Ramos left two sons. And Lou left a wife with whom he wanted to have kids and, and hadn't. So I don't know which is a bleaker sight. So. Michael Daly writes for the Daily Beast. His book about the New York Fire Department chaplain, Michael Judge, who died on 9-11, is called The Book of Michael, The Surprising Life and Heroic Death of Father Michael Judge. Michael Daly covers New York City police, fire, and institutions very well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm now going to talk to the main person you hear from when you watch the number one rated show on television. In fact, if you compare the ratings of the number one show to other number one shows in television history, like All in the Family or Seinfeld, this current number one show is more dominant than even Carol O'Connor was as Archie Bunker or Jerry was as Jerry Seinfeld. Do you know who I'm going to talk to? It's Al Michaels. He is the host of, well, the main announcer on Sunday Night Football. You know him from Monday Night Football, from the Miracle on Ice, from the Earthquake Interrupted Game 3 of the 1989 World Series. Hello, Al. Mike, how you doing? That is an interesting distinction. I don't think that most people uh, think of you necessarily as a TV star and comparable to whoever, Seinfeld or, or All in the Family or MASH or one of these shows, but you definitely are. Well, those guys get residuals. We don't. That yeah. would be the difference. You know, it's a, it's kind of a different game. If those guys are on the air for, I think, four years, and then they go to syndication, uh, they wind up with G4s. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, wind up going to LAX to make my trip. So <laughs> that would be one distinct difference. But I'm not complaining. Trust me, I have a wonderful job, and I love it, and uh, love the crew that I'm with. And it speaks really to the National Football League and how popular this is right now that you know, most of the, the top shows on television have an NFL affiliation. When you were a youngster, you went to, you were there in attendance for the first Super Bowl, is that right? I was. My brother and I went to the first Super Bowl in January of 1967 at the L.A. Coliseum, which at that time seated 100,000. The crowd that day was in the mid-60s, mm-hmm. so you had 30,000 empty seats. They didn't even call it the Super Bowl. It was just the championship game, and it featured the National Football League champion Green Bay Packers against the American Football League champion Kansas City Chiefs, and this was the forerunner to the merger of the two leagues, which took effect in 1970. Two networks carried it because, essentially, it wasn't even worth it to figure out who should get broadcast rights. We're talking about the Super Bowl. And the reason you were there is uh, tell us what your dad did. Interesting job. Well, my father, well, I grew up in, in New York and in Brooklyn, actually, and then uh, lived on Long Island for a couple of years before we moved to California. So he was a, uh, a very young talent agent. My parents were 18 when I was born. So my dad was uh, coming up through the ranks at a company called General Artist Corporation in New York and represented some uh, people that, you know, you'd have to be pretty old to remember, like a singer by the name of Joni James. But then he wound up helping to represent Pat Boone, which was kind of a, a big deal in those years. Pat Boone became a you know, a major star in the 50s. And then uh, my father was transferred in his work to California, went to work for 
MCA at that time, uh, which still obviously exists, and they wanted to start a sports department. My father loved sports. They put him in charge of it. And one of the first things he did was write the original television contract for the American Football League, which was born in 1960, and at that time, ABC. So that contract actually sat on my uh, kitchen table one night when I was in high school. And so my dad had a uh, an affiliation with the with the AFL, and then he went to work with Mark McCormick, and they founded Transworld International, which is the television arm of uh, IMG. And so uh, that's how we got 50-yard line seats to the first Super Bowl. Your craft was honed in Hawaii. That It was there that you put in your uh, 10,000 hours, as Malcolm Gladwell has documented. You covered minor league baseball, Hawaii, Golden Warriors football, high school football. Did you ever turn down a gig? Uh, over in Hawaii? No. If it moved, I did it. <laughs> I mean, if there was a, a ball in play, whether it was a basketball, a football, a baseball, whatever was in play, uh, I was there. It was, it was the perfect scenario for me, Mike, because I was able to go over there and got the job announcing the minor league baseball team, AAA, in those years, Pacific Coast League. But that led to basketball. That led to football. And I talk about it in the book where, you know, I'm doing high school football and college football every weekend. And in Hawaii, what would happen is they would play a high school game on Friday afternoon and then another one on Friday night. And then on Saturday, they'd play one in the late morning and one in the mid-afternoon, and then the university would play on Saturday night. And I did all five games. So I'm doing five football games a weekend times about 10 or 11. So I'm getting 50 or 55 games experience in one year. By yeah. so the time I get out of there after three years, I've already done about 160 football games, which would take somebody else about 10 years to do. And if you were a big football or a big sports fan in Hawaii in, say, 1970, you couldn't experience a sporting event without hearing Al Michaels' voice in your ears. Whether you liked it or not. <laughs> I'm sure there were people who said, not him again, you know, <laughs> and couldn't get the radio off fast enough. But it was a, a wonderful time. Those people over there were fantastic. And it's a, you know, a melting pot. And in the book, I talk about the fact that, uh, you know, when people said to me, well, how'd you get all the Soviet names down in, in the Lake Placid Olympics? I go, are you kidding? I'm doing high school basketball with five Samoans on a fast break. I said, that was hard. Lake Placid was simple. I don't want to take the charge from five Samoans on a fast break. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> they might not have great vertical ups, but man, what power. Um, so in doing the Miracle on Ice, in doing the 1980 Olympics, how in the moment was everything? Because um, you're not a catchphrase guy. And right. from what I read in the book, you scarcely considered the possibility that the Americans could win. What was the time lag between hitting your brain and reaching your lips and then the ears of America? Well, the ears of America was on tape delay, right? So what was right. the ta- what was the tagline between hitting your brain and reaching your lips? Do you believe in miracles? Yes. It was pretty instantaneous because the U.S. has no chance to win the game. And not only do I feel that way, but I'm working with Ken Dryden, who had won Stanley Cups and Vezina trophies and had just retired and is a brilliant guy. And he played against the Soviets and our... Our conversation going to the arena that day was, you know, if it can only be 3-1 Soviets midway through the second period, that would be pretty good for us. And then, you know, the U.S., I mean, you, you look at that game, the U.S. comes from behind three different times. They get outshot 39-16. to 16. The U.S. wins the game, but the Soviets really dominated the game. So much of the game is played in front of Jim Craig. 
So when the U.S. takes the lead with 10 minutes to go and the place is going crazy now, and I'm just trying to stay really cool and just, I want to call the game. Just call the game at that point. Don't get overwhelmed. You know, the, the place is coming apart. We're on a rickety platform in the front of the balcony, and it feels like an earthquake. And I just, I concentrated on just calling the, the game itself. Don't go anywhere else but inside the game. So now the Soviets are putting some pressure on in the last half minutes, but finally, uh, last uh, half minute. But finally, the puck comes around behind Craig and then gets swept out to center ice with about six seconds left. So the game is over with about five seconds left. There's no way the Soviets can regather and get a shot on Craig. So it gave me that those just a couple of seconds to, you know, have somebody once wrote, "It's the nine-year-old in me coming out," and it was because in my brain I remember the word miraculous popped in, and then somehow that got morphed into a question and an answer, and that was the end of that. So these are the days before people have home VCRs. You're not making a call for posterity. I'm just calling the game to the end of the game. And then, you know, that's from my heart. That came out of my heart. And it's the one time where I'm going to do a game where 99.99% of the audience is with you. I mean, unless there were a few communists out there in 1980, everybody's going to be with me on that call. I couldn't do that in a Super Bowl or, or a game. They would go, what's he talking about? You know, we're rooting for the other team. So it came out. I was for, it was very lucky. It was, it was just, and I had no idea what I'd said at the end of the game. And then it plays, obviously, quite nicely in posterity. But that's just, it's pure, unadulterated uh, serendipity. I was at the, I was in Lake Placid for the first time ever a few months ago, and I went to the Olympic Museum, and they have, I don't know if you know this, playing on a loop, your call of that game. They have that game. I mean, that's all you hear in the museum. <laughs> and I sat down and I watched it for 15 minutes. And yeah. it was good hockey. It was great announcing. There wasn't always clarity on why some rules were being enforced. It was actually, it seemed like a tough situation. It, compare the amount of information you have going in before a Monday Night Football game, oh my God, versus a little bit seat of the pants there, but it was, you know, amazingly, I used the phrase before, it was amazingly in the moment. Well, you know, Mike, it, it was interesting in that in those years, people didn't know very much about hockey. So one of the reasons that I was assigned to hockey, uh, the primary reason was that uh, on, a, on an all-star staff that included Jim McKay, uh, Howard Cosell, Frank Gifford, Keith Jackson, Bill Fleming, and a few other people, uh, I was the new kid on the block. I'd been there four years at that point. None of those guys had ever done a hockey game. I had done one. So I win that battle one to nothing to nothing to nothing to nothing. I also loved hockey as a kid, and I was one of the few people on the staff who could explain icing and offside. I knew what that was. And so that was part of it. Uh, and that's how I wind up getting the assignment. So that, I couldn't have been luckier to get the assignment, to have what happens happen, to say something out of my heart that lives in posterity. And it's a funny thing. Obviously, you know, I've seen this played back you know, thousands of times, but I'm now to the point I'm in the third person. I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to be said, but it's like me listening to somebody else do this. Uh, I kind of want to exult in the moment myself and just enjoy what took place. So I take myself out of the booth, put myself in front of the television set as a viewer, and watch some other guy calling it. Do you ever get to that place now in a game? 
Uh, no, because if I, I'd be afraid to go there at this point. I, I can't. I can't do that during the game. Maybe I can do it, you know, on tape or, or when, I, when I'm watching a tape. But clearly, I mean, at that point, I was I was completely in in the game. But I mean, right now, watching this back, what 34 years later, and and hearing it and listening to it, and again, it's one of those. You know, wonderful things where you know how it's going to end. You you know what the audio will be. It's it's so funny. I, I uh, in the book talk about Mike Arruzzioni, who scored the the winning goal with ten minutes left to make it four three U.S., which turns out to be the final score. And Mike told me once he said, uh, you know, he said every time I get a little bit down, I'll go home and put that tape in. And the best thing about it, every time I shoot, the puck goes in. <laughs> Uh, Al Michaels is the author with John Wertheim, the great John Wertheim, of You Can't Make This Up, Miracles, Memories, and the Perfect Marriage of Sports and Television. Thank you, Al. My pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you. And now the spiel, cause and effect. The New York Times had details today about how Bill Cosby's handlers quelled rape allegations for almost a decade. Interesting stuff. An indictment on big media's propensity to be cowed. Cosby's advisors playing the egos of CBS News bigwigs Dan Rather and Don Hewitt off each other, for instance. It's fascinating that the bit of media that set off the current interest in long-ago rape allegations was a comedy routine by Hannibal Burris, which went viral in mid-October. It shows the power of media that can't be bought, threatened, leaned on, or maybe that simply escapes the notice of Cosby's highly remunerated retinue of advisors. By the way, on this show, we covered those allegations and asked why Cosby's biographer Mark Whitaker didn't deal with them weeks before Hannibal Burris performed that set in Philadelphia. I had been pondering those questions for a few months before we did our interview, and what set me off in that pondering was, you're not going to believe this, I had seen Hannibal Burris perform an early version of that bit at the club Littlefield in Brooklyn on June 9th, and I searched around YouTube in case anyone had posted video or audio of that night. They hadn't. We put in a request for Hannibal Burris back then. He was too busy. So I waited for a better peg for my story than this routine that I saw but couldn't play for you, the listeners. Eventually, I did the gist story. I talked to Tanner Colby, who has written biographies of Chris Farley, John Belushi, Michael Jackson. He's also written extensively on race relations. And I asked Tanner why allegations dogged Woody Allen and Michael Jackson, but Cosby was then escaping media scrutiny. Other than it just doesn't square with the narrative that we want to tell ourselves about America's dad is both with Allen and with Jackson, you had so much grist to feed the media cycle. You had, you know, Mia Farrow coming out of courtrooms every day and just the media following it all the time. With this story, you had, you know, two interviews that these women gave on TV and a paper denial from Cosby's spokesperson. There's, you can't keep the story in the media long. There's no grist for the mill. And so it just it glanced off him, and then it just faded away. Well, the Times details today that it didn't just fade away. The iris was nudged out by a team of lawyers, spokesmen, and publicists who pretty much overpowered a news media that flinched easily. There were details in the story that rankled, and others that amused, like this part. 
Cosby has called upon Martin D. Singer, an $850-an-hour lawyer with a reputation for playing rough on behalf of clients like Charlie Sheen and Arnold Schwarzenegger when they found themselves embroiled in controversy. Might I suggest that Mr. Singer Esquire might be commanding too high a price, given that Charlie Sheen and Arnold Schwarzenegger don't seem to have shaken the controversy and that the charges are actually sticking to Cosby too, finally? Maybe 775 is a better rate. Anyway, there were so many details that were sad for established journalism in that time story. Most were explicit. Then there was this implicit sad note. The Cosby Media team's strategy over the years has been a mix of hardball and playing ball, sometimes even with the same news organization. Though the Cosby legal team threatened the National Enquirer in 2000 with a $250 million lawsuit, relations with that tabloid were decidedly more friendly five years later. So did you pick that up? The New York Times just called the National Enquirer a news organization. So much of this story reflects poorly on all of us, from our childlike conflation of a person with the fatherly roles he played to the cowardliness of the supposed gatekeepers. Now, we always knew that some stories are ignored because they're too complex or take too much time or resources to investigate or they might not get ratings. But here, you had a story of celebrity and sex and still the media was silent. Well, at least not everyone was silent. There was one truth-telling jester who with one accurate barb cut through it all. And that's it for today's show. Is Andrea Salenzi producer of The Gist? Did she produce this particular episode? No. Does Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, mark his territory through urinating, defecating, and scratching, rubbing, and biting trees? Yes! Is Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, darn tootin'? You know, we always focus on the do you believe in miracles part. What if Al Michaels just changed the yes part? Anyway, do you believe in listening in Stitcher or on iTunes where you can offer a review? Damn straight. Should you subscribe to Yo and sign up for podcasts to know when the show is posted? For reals. Is facebook.com slash slate gist the right site? Damn skippy. Is our email the gist at slate.com? Faux shizzle. Can we layer the credits with snark, extend that Joel Meyer is ursine trope, and at the same time, sincerely thank you for listening? Bye.